This is the voice of the Pirates, Gary Cohen, and you are having the pleasure of listening to Tom and Mike on Left Coast Pirates. Seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead. Guarded by Ochefu. Gets the step into the lane. Goes to the bucket. Layup. Rolls around and in. And a foul. Whitehead ties the game. Pow! From Trenton. Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes. From just west of the Ward Place Gate in San Diego, California, he is Mike Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tom Kaharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. Welcome to this week's edition of Left Coast Pirates. It is the season review edition, Mike. Are you excited? Am I excited? I, you call me Eeyore the entire season, <laughs> and the season's over, and you want me to be excited now? Come on. Mike, I went back and listened to our season preview just to see how right or wrong we were, and man, you spent 45 minutes complaining about the pandemic. 45 minutes, and you know what? Hey, we made it through a season. Uh, what do you want me to say? I didn't know if it was going to go down. There was a lot of doubt. There was a lot of, you know, is this going to happen? But this, if that. You want me to come here to start this show and, and give you something enlightening in terms of my opening monologue today? Mike, I, I never expect you to give me anything enlightening in your opening monologue. Let's be serious. Uh, don't get me wrong. Like, I, I love the fact that the NCAA tournament is back. You know, I, I loved filling out the bracket with my son, for the first time ever in his life. I mean, his, his eyes were lighting up with all the logos and things that we kind of set up for the kids at their elementary school. It was, it was a blast. I love getting into every upset and the Cinderella story. And this tournament, uh, you know, beyond all, had narratives left and right all over the bracket. Tom, we had seven teams seated six or worse remaining in the Sweet 16 including 15-seeded Oral Roberts. I mean, the stories were endless. It was, it was good basketball. But I took great pleasure in watching Rutgers choke away a nine-point lead in the final five minutes versus Houston. You know, they had a shot at the Sweet 16. It was right there. And you got Miles Johnson missing the dunk and then Houston igniting that rally. And, and if, as you're watching the, the games that day, you see that entire bracket blowing up. And there is a dream draw for the final four lining up right in front of all their fans' eyes and then kablooey as they choke it down the stretch. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, do I really hate Rutgers that much? <laughs> Mikey, well, we're seeing Hall fans. We've got that sense of schadenfreude or however you say it, that that enjoying the misery of others. Come on, I love it. Well, that's what I was going to say. Or, or does misery love company, right? Because as much as I love the NCAA tournament and all March Madness has to offer, it just kind of felt hollow not being there for the first time since way back in 2014-15, you know, as a Pirate fan. I, I'm, I'm missing some of the juice as much as I love the tournament and the fact that we got through an entire season. I get you, Mike, but Rutgers going down, 
And Houston, who took care of Rutgers, came back and took care of Jimmy B and those Orange men. I loved it. Hey, all we need right now, Mike, is Florida State today to take care of Mission. And I got the trifecta, baby. I got, I got Florida State in the Final Four. I hope they do. Well, Mike, let's pull it back. We took a week off. We needed to get mentally right. We needed to get right with our God so we could truly take a look at the season as a whole and come back. So what better way to do that than take our normal format and run through it, but with an eye on the bigger prize here? Wait a minute. You you don't want to do what we've done the last two seasons where we do the good, the bad, and the ugly? What, are you afraid that we're going to have that much ugly to talk about throughout this recap? I don't know if there was much good or bad. It might have been all ugly the way we did our season recaps last time, but let's just go with our way. We've got something that works. So... Seton Hall finishes its season 14 and 13. 10 and 9 in the Big East play, good for fourth. COVID cancellations were the norm across the country in November as scheduled games at the Charleston Classic and against Baylor at the Rock got erased from the calendar. But the Pirates were one of the first programs to get hit with the pause just prior to the start of the season before falling short at Louisville by one point in the opener. The remainder of non-conference play went up and down. There were thrilling games like the 19-point comeback against Penn State and the defeat of of a returning Rick Pitino with his new Iona Ball Club. But it also had disappointing setbacks, such as the loss at Rhode Island and in Omaha versus Oregon during what became known as the Seton Hall National Tour, the four games in seven days in four different sites. Big East Conference play saw the Hall race out to a 5-1 and one start, highlighted by a dominant 17-point victory at Xavier, but then fell short in all four marquee games against Creighton and Nova in a very frustrating January. Two big road wins at Providence and UConn seem to have set a fifth straight NCAA appearance back on course before the Pirates imploded down the stretch, which included ultimately losing five of their last six games to seal their fate. All right, Tommy, stats for the season. Individually, I'm only going to get to say his name a few more times. Sandro Mamu Kelashvili, my boy, 17.6 points per game, 7.6 rebounds, led the team in both categories, and rode those stats in route to co-Big East Player of the Year honors. Jared Roden, 14.9 points per game and 6.7 rebounds, both top 10 in the Big East as well. Shavar Reynolds led the team with 4.2 assists, and Ike Obiagu finished with 2.9 blocks per game, which was best in the Big East and tied for seventh nationally. From a team perspective, during conference play only, our free throw shooting was tops in the league in terms of attempts per game, 18.2. And we actually shot it pretty well, 75.7%, which was third best in the league. But our rebounding on the defensive side and overall ranked next to last in both categories. And our three-point metrics were not much better. Three-point shooting offensively for us, 31%, ninth best in the conference. And our three-point shooting defense, we gave up 37.8% to the opponents, 11th in the conference. Yes, that is that is dead last. And it seemed like everybody had their best night from three against us. And that ultimately led us to ranking 312th nationally 
in this category. You know, most of the other categories kind of ranked right where they finished, like middle of the pack. So let's get away from stats. Let's move on to the turning point. And Tom, I'm going to go a little unconventional here. I'm going to say the Creighton game where we had the meltdown. You got Bryce Aiken who makes a layup and gives Seton Hall a 16-point lead with 11.30 to play against 17th Red Creighton, and all seems to be good in Pirate Nation at that moment, right? And then we all know what happens. After that, the Hall ends up on the wrong side of an 85-81 to 81 final score. Now, you're probably sitting there going, no, no, that, that's, that's not where the turning point in the season was. The Pirates righted the ship. You know, they got four straight wins. They got to 10-5 and five in conference play. They had a soft back end to the schedule and things were lined up for them to take care of business. So the turning point has to be that collapse and massive no-show at Butler when they're missing Aaron Thompson and we're eight point favorites on the road to take that game. And I'm going to tell you, no, it's this Creighton loss. And here's why I got a couple of reasons. Okay. Reason number one, I look back at that bucket by Aiken and it felt like that was the last meaningful shot that he hit the entire year. <laughs> I mean, that's just the way it like felt. That's so harsh, I, man. That's harsh. I, 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 but we also then talked about this and said the fact that they collapsed in that game, they missed out on their marquee win. And because they did not have that marquee win, it kind of put pressure on the rest of the season to not slip up because the resume then needed to be perfect. And I thought that that put so much pressure on all those other games down the stretch. And then also, my, my, my culmination point, it wasn't just a turning point for the players. It was a turning point for the fans. Because if you ask me, you saw an immediate divide between the fans who still were believers and fans who then became doubters. And it was so different on so many levels. It was scary. You, you know, Mike, we don't normally pat ourselves on the back or say, hey, look at us, because we're not the story. But I'll say this. Out of the folks that cover the team in one way or another, almost everybody was like, okay, it's a loss, but don't worry. It's it's not killing the season. We're not in panic mode. And we were sitting there telling you, now you got to have a near-perfect back end of the season. And if there's anything we know about Biggie's basketball is there's no such thing as getting a near-perfect back end of the season. And, and what happened? exactly what we were complaining about we, we had a game at nova that was in control that we ended up taking a bad shot causing a foul and we lose that one we lose this game to creighton and it just all started tumbling you can't expect things to break exactly the way you think they're going to because they never do in college basketball well, what's even more frustrating is we are assuming that they were going to have to play that back end stretch. Perfect. Right. They go one in five in that back end stretch. And we're going to talk about it throughout today's episode, but the way that the bubble was crumbling, the way that the, you know, the ball was bouncing in the favor of the pirates in terms of other teams positioning themselves for the tournament, they didn't even need to go perfect, right? They just needed to snag one or two of those games. And then if you would have thrown in this Creighton opportunity, we'd probably be in the tournament. Who knows how it would have really truly played out, but they were right there. So, yeah, to me, this this game threw doubt into the season. We had question marks. You know, Bryce was was unconscious in this game. And then when he's on a minutes restriction, there was a lot of question marks in my mind that came up after this game, regardless of how they bounced back for a small window. Uh, this ended up becoming, to me, that pivot point for the rest of the season. It could be debatable, but that that's my take. 
I always say ifs and buts. You shouldn't think about it, but this team was really close to being a 13-14 win team. But enough of the bad feelings. Let's go into blue-tinted glasses and talk about what broke right in the season. Mike, I'm going to go in a direction that you don't want to hear, Mike. But the team getting through this season is a huge win for them. We had only one COVID pause that happened right prior to the beginning of the year. And they only had four games that were either postponed or canceled. And I'm just going to say this out loud. I'm kind of glad that that Baylor game got canceled because I don't know if these guys were ready to face that. I don't even know where to go here. I, I I really want the opportunities to play a team like Baylor. I never want to shy away from a game like that, right? No one was ducking Rutgers this year, but if there's a team that you wanted to duck, yeah, you want to duck Baylor. I, they're my pick to win the entire tournament. They've been steamrolling teams throughout the year. They've just been knocking off top-ranked opponent after top-ranked opponent, and they do it with defense. And I think that early in the season, we were not playing – our best offensively. They haven't found their legs yet. I thought Baylor was going to make it ugly. No? Okay, back to Seton Hall, though, for a second, Mike, <laughs> all right? Think about the teams. You had a plethora of teams out there that had multiple pauses that they had to go through. Iona had a bunch. Xavier had a bunch. Baylor had a bunch. We had the one early in the season. We got through it. We got to play almost a full season i'm just concerned that this is the first thing you got on the blue tinted glasses section i'm worried about the depth of what we're going to be talking about blue tinted glasses that you're leading off with we played games no in all seriousness this is a credit to the team think about all the things these kids had to go through to make it through the isolation the testing You know, this was rough on a bunch of 18 through 22-year-old kids to get through. I'm proud of them. This is a huge accomplishment. I don't know that I could have handled this at 18 years old, man. No, I I get it. I'm, I'm I'm just messing with you. And at the end of the season, it was, you know, a little bright light that they get to MSG. They get to the final couple games of the season. And the family members, at least, were able to kind of be there on site for senior day. They were able to be there at the Garden in a limited capacity. But for those players to have their close circle around them, cheering them on and supporting them, I think that was important. And also, win, lose, or draw, it was really important for the fans because I'll be the first to admit, as uh, with all the doubt that we had on the season and whether it was going to play out and whether it was going to follow the normal course of what I consider, you know, true to the spirit of the, of the game, They played, right? I mean, we needed to fill this void of what happened by us not playing in the NCAA tournament or playing in the Big East tournament when COVID kind of struck the sport down to end last season. So to actually have another year where that did not happen, that would have been difficult, especially for someone like myself. Uh, I I assume that would have kind of cascaded with similar emotions across many of the fans out there. So to play the games... These players did such a service for so many other people out there, even though it's just college basketball. Kudos to the kids. No matter how critical we get, I'm very proud of them. They should take a bow. Good job getting through the season. But you know who needs to take a bow? And you are going to have to bow down along with him because this is about the last time I get to do this. Andrew is the bright spot for this team. And I know we talked about it and covered his accolades when he won co-biggest the player in the last episode. But Tom, I went back and I did some more digging 
and I don't think we gave him his due. You know, we kind of poo-pooed the, oh, it was a co-biggies player. Let's let's see why he didn't deserve it. I'm going to give you some more rankings here because I, I don't think we understood the type of pressure and the load that Sandro had to carry. We mentioned it before, right? Points per game, second in the conference. Rebounds per game, fifth. And assists per game, 12th, leading all front court players in that category. But here are some more biggies ranks on the season. He finished second in minutes played per game. He finished second in field goals made. He finished first in field goals attempted. He finished fifth in field goal percentage with all those attempts. He finished 12th in three-pointers made. Third in free throws made. First in free throws attempted. And also number one in player usage percentage at 28.8%. So I really do think you owe Sandro an apology. He was asked to shoulder a ton of the workload for this team. And I think the coaches acknowledge that. You know, I think if there's something you like more than Seton Hall basketball and Sandro, it's creating false narratives. You love your stories, Mike. I've got nothing to apologize for, Mike. You go back, you listen to the season preview we did with John Fanta, and I just expounded on Mamu's virtues. I talked about his shooting, his handle, his passing. I even gave him the benefit of the doubt for being good enough on defense, which I'll tell you what, it wasn't as good. It wasn't good enough this year, but it wasn't a black hole either. But Mike, I wanted consistency from him. And he hadn't shown that in the first three years. Maybe he showed it in a little back end eight game stretch of his junior season. But that was the question. Could he be the guy that you'd go to game in, game out, game in, game out? And I'm a little ashamed of you, Mike, because you're more than just a box score guy. We know plenty of guys who get on podcasts and read box scores and think they know what they're talking about. But you want to talk about stats. I'm going to say this, Mike. The consistency waned a little bit with Sandro. You know, I was kind of joking with you off the program and I said, you know, his output ended up being like one of those things like a little kid draws uh, mountains, you know, pointy up and down, up and down. I'm going to give you, I'm going to run down, Mike, since you love numbers, I'm going to run numbers down. This is what Sandro had as a point total in his games in the Big East. 32, 17, 20, 2, 18, 24, 14, 15, 23, 11, 12, 20, 22, 11, 25, 22, 11, 20, 15, 28. All over the board, Mike. And I know, and I know he makes up for it in other places. But you know what? When he was good, he was really good. And when he disappeared, he still really disappeared, Mike. I, I can't disagree that there were points in his game where there was some inconsistency. I, I would expect you to come back and say, Mike, with all those rankings, you left out the fact that he led the Big East in turnovers. Come on. I mean, that, that should have been the stat that you throw back at me. And, and then I would have came back to you and said, look, when you have a 6'11 power forward handling the ball at his usage rate as much as they made him do in the half court, on the fast break, bringing the ball up against the press, you're going to have those types of turnovers. So it's not a complete pass, but geez, I mean, what do you expect at that point? Absolutely. The usage rate was off the charts. It shouldn't be that high for that kind of guy. I agree with you, Mike. And you know, now that we've seen, we've covered Sandro 
for his entirety of his career. I am extremely excited that he was a Seton Hall Pirate. I think he had a wonderful career with us. I think he had one of those old-fashioned careers where you don't see all that often where... He starts off as a role player early on and he keeps building and he gets better and better every year and he and his production increases. And I am I am thrilled with it. But this is what we do. We we nitpick. We 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 have to give both sides of the story. I am extremely excited that Mamu was a Seton Hall pirate. I am extremely excited to see what can come up from it going forward. I'm gonna say exactly what John Fanta said in the preview. No, you don't agree with that. I love no, you, you don't Sandro. Agree. I absolutely love you. Don't Come on, to Tom. He had seven double doubles on the year, and there were three games that he missed by one rebound to make it ten. And he scored 20 13 times. And he has some monster games. And without those monster games, I don't know where this team would be, right? 32 and 9 against St. John's in the opener, 30 versus Penn State in the comeback. I mean, he has 23 9 and 5 in that game at Nova just to give them a shot to pull out the victory at the end. I mean, he may not have risen to the occasion all the time, but more often than not, he made the big play for this team when they needed it. And where would this team have finished without Sandro? Is my point. It's all, all true. Every, every word of that's true, Mike. I've got nothing against it. And I, I loved watching him play. I've got nothing against it. Wonderful career, thousand point score. Let's see what the future holds for him. I, I wish him nothing but the best. It was great having him on the team. So, so I am the one who's got the positive vibe right now. You got the sour grapes and grumpiness uh, so far. You huh? and your narrative. I am not sour, but we might as well jump into it now. The team itself finished fourth. So there's lots of folks saying they, they met and exceeded expectations. You know, the preseason coaches poll said they were supposed to finish fifth. But did they really, Mike? Did they really meet expectations? I mean, yes, they finished fourth, tied with St. John's. But when they got to the tournament, they got seated fifth. So is that really fourth? I don't know. Clearly, the Big East was down. You had opportunities to make a name for yourself against teams that weren't as good. You had a UConn team that finished ahead of you, but they only got a handful of games from their best players, so clearly we should have been better than that. So I'm not quite sure that this team met expectations. See, that's where I have the problem with kind of trying to align where they were picked in the preseason by the coaches to where they finished in the final standings. You're going to have people go, well, they were picked fifth, and they finished tied for fourth or fifth in the you know the, the tiebreaker rankings for the Big East tournament. And, and I'm with you. The expectation going into the preseason was that the Big East could challenge for six NCAA tournament bids. And that's not the depth that this conference had. The reality is they only got four teams in the dance because Georgetown ran the table and got the automatic qualifying bid. They're only getting three teams in the tournament if Georgetown doesn't make that run and UConn or Creighton come away with the title. But that was true. With a, that, that was true in a couple conferences too, Mike. You had a few bid stealers. Don't, don't give the me the don't give me the Pac-12. The Pac-12 was not ranked as a, <laughs> as a as a top flight conference. Yes, I know they are kicking ass and taking names right now throughout the tournament, but that's not the point. They got three teams playing today, Mike. Look, the conference itself, in terms of Ken Palm, forget about the net for a second. In terms of Ken Palm, was ranked fifth across the major power conferences where the Big East has recently been up in that two or three range, challenging the big boys across the nation. That just wasn't the case this year in terms of the metrics. And then you look at Seton Hall, who is the fourth highest rated team in terms of the net 
at 57. And once again, going back to the preview, you got John Fanta going, yeah, I think this is like a top 40 type team. And they finished 57th in the net as the fourth best rated team. That's not where we thought this conference was going to be. So we thought they were going to be a bubble team and, and they kind of were, but we have come to believe that we are a perennial participant in the big dance. And to me, that was the expectation. And that's where we fell short of the expectations. Forget about where they ranked in the Big East final standing. That doesn't mean anything to me. All right, Tommy. So uh, you, you said that you think this has got like a, a double-edged sword. You got the team expectations and we also got player expectations. So I also think where they really fell short was some of the expectations or prognosis from some of the pundits, but mainly Kevin Willard in terms of what we could expect from some of the players that was going to get us back to the dance, backfill the loss of Miles Powell, Quincy McKnight, Romaro Gill, and just kind of keep that train rolling. Jerry Carino has said at the beginning of the season, Seton Hall no longer rebuilds, they reload. And I think we had this expectation that there are certain guys were just going to step up and fill the shoes, some pretty big shoes that were left by those previous seniors. So, so I want to go back and listen to something that coach had to say and do our favorite segment. And now deep thoughts with Kevin Willard, just a little bit earlier in today's show. Okay. Well, Mike, you know, I, certain things fell short of expectations, but I'm not quite sure that this segment fell short of expectations. I think we did. This was one of the more fun things we did all season. It was fun. I, I don't think coach is coming on the show because of this segment, but <laughs> hey, it, was, it was fun. It was fun. So coach early in the season went on a podcast with Robbie Hummel and Jeff Goodman and proceeded to say the following uh, regarding what he saw his team's identity to be this year. I think we're going to be much, you know, we're going to be much better offensively uh, just because uh, Tyree Samuels and Sandra will play together a ton. Um, and, Tyrese was really, you know, we, we struggled a little bit at the end of the year because Tyrese Samuels got hurt. And uh, Jared Roden, I think, is going to be a first-team all, all Big East player. Uh, Miles Kale is going to have a chance to kind of not just be the guy who has to defend the other team's best player. Um, if I can get Bryce healthy, I think he's as good at any guard in the league. And, you know, we still have Ike. You know, Ike's a seven-foot-one shot blocking, so we still have that presence that Roe gave us last year. Um, to call Mosin, who's a transfer from Canisius, is, he reminds me of Alpha Diallo, junkyard dog, man, just gets it done. So I think I, I can play big. I, I can go Ike, Tyrese, Sandro on the back line and play big on the zone. Or, or I can go small with, you know, Jared, Sandro, Miles um, Kale, you know, Bryce Aiken and Shabar Reynolds um, and really kind of press and, and switch man to man. All right, Tom, let's do this. There's a lot to unpack here. So let's make this like the bulk of our sour grapes and gripes. Let's just kind of dissect it bullet point by bullet point. Cause I really do think it kind of talks about where the season really went from a big picture. When you kind of look at where Kevin missed the mark in some of these statements, I want to start with the first one right off the bat. You have Sandro and Tyrese are going to play a lot together. Really? I, I did not see that happen. Tyrese went from 11 minutes per game in his freshman season to 17 minutes a game in his sophomore year. He had five and a half points per game, just over three rebounds. And those were up from numbers of three points a game and just under three rebounds. So not this monumental jump that we were expecting from Tyrese. So you tell me what the heck happened. 
I, I don't know. You can't expect consistent production from players when their minutes are inconsistent. I mean, you looked at Tyrese's minute totals for games. They're all over the board. I had a hard time figuring out why. In in the last set of games, it was it was striking. In the loss against Butler, he played 27 minutes, shot 3 of 4, had 6.6 rebounds. That's good production for a guy that's coming off the bench. But then you look at his last four games, he went 14 minutes, 10 minutes, 8 minutes, and 10 minutes. And that last game, he didn't even get off the pine for the second half, which we bemoaned last week. So, And it's not like Ike was forcing Kevin Willard's hand early in the season saying, I'm playing so well, you got to keep me on the floor. That's not what was going on. I'll throw it back to you with another question then. People make the argument that the pause or the lack of individual instruction that was missed due to the pandemic in the offseason really stunted the development of, of Tyrese. Or was it the fact that he just wasn't playing consistent defense that kept him off the court? So is it the underdevelopment or was it just lack of defensive execution? But isn't that true for every team in the country, Mike? I mean, you would expect that younger players didn't make jumps across the board if that was the case. I mean, Tyrese came into the team last year with a whole set of expectations about this uber upside. And, you know, this is it it didn't help. But you got to think at a certain point, you got to kind of stick him out there, get him comfortable to a role and, and build on that, you know, development has to happen in game as much as in practice. So there were moments throughout the season where we were like, wow, his defense game eight versus defense game one looked significantly better to the trained eye. But then there were some stretches where you just, maybe it was lack of motor. I don't know what it is with Tyrese. I see the potential. The skill set is there. When he takes those long galloping steps off one dribble from the top of the circle and can get to the rim, you're like, wow, he's got something. But maybe it's the fire. Maybe we're missing that lack of fire. I don't, I don't know what it is yet, but he was expected to make a big jump this year. And a lot is going to be expected of him the following season to build upon that. So there's a, there's obviously some concern here. I don't know that it's lack of motor, Mike, because, you know, toward that back end of that season, most of his points came off of either offensive rebounds, putbacks, or something or other, because they were certainly not running any offense for him. So No, this is true. He shot like 56% from the floor in the two-point range. His three-point shooting was the same year over year. So maybe it was just utilization. They didn't get him the ball in positions for him to succeed. I don't know, but this was a big piece of the puzzle that we thought could be a wild card that did not come to fruition all right let, let, let's move on well they talked about jared Roden potentially being a first team all big east player Roden had a really good season you know you mentioned the stats previously almost 16 points 6.7 boards but that's not first team mike and certainly i don't know if that was a fair expectation for Jared Roden coming into this season. he You're going from a guy that's big-time energy, all over the court, hands and faces, hand-slapping balls away, player, and you're saying he's going to be one of the six best players in the league the following year. That's a big ask. And that's why this is not fair. Jared Roden belongs somewhere in the blue-tinted glasses section of this recap, but because there was such a lofty expectation, because he ends up being 
the Robin to Sandro's Batman. And there were some nights where he just didn't shoot well from three, or he just didn't give you that tenacity that you saw on the glass the year before. Jared runs into some criticism and that's just not fair. So I want Jared to be in the blue tinted glasses section. And Kevin, unfortunately put him on a pedestal that was probably not realistic for him to get to. He gets all big East honorable mention. We thought he could maybe scrape into a second team, all big East. If he had a really good season. I thought he had a good season, but unfortunately, based on some of the other things we're going to talk about, they needed even more from him and it just didn't happen. But that's, that's not fair to put all that responsibility on his shoulders when other guys didn't step up. So I I call blasphemy. Roden shouldn't be in this section here. Okay, man, move on. I'm going to set the stage and and I'll let you defend him because he's your guy. I got to defend Sandro one last time. So Miles Kale, according to Willard, has a chance to be more than just a guy that has to defend the other team's best player. And Miles had his moments. 30 versus Georgetown. 20 and 9 in the collapse against Creighton. 19 and 6 at Providence when they won. 20 at UConn when they won. 16 versus St. John's in the Big East. Tom, when Miles was on, the hall was tough to beat. But he also had 13 games in single-digit scoring. And he ended his career on a one of six for three points and two rebounds in 23 minutes against Georgetown in the Big East tournament. To me, it was a microcosm of who Miles Kale was. When, when he hit his ceiling, they were good. But when he disappeared, man, the Hall really struggled to find ways to put points on the board. See, this is where I'm going to take umbrage with you, Mike, because I'm going to put my full-on Miles Kale fanboy outfit on and go for it. I can't argue with your points here, but as you felt the need to defend the co-Big East player of the year by telling me how many games he missed a double-double by only one rebound and blah, 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 I'm going to say the same thing. Yes, Miles had 13 games in single digits. Five of those games were either point were, were games where he could have scored one more basket to get double digits. There you go. I'm defending him just like you felt necessary to defend Sandro. Again, nothing you said was false. I always thought that Miles was used incorrectly. He's not a guy who's going to sit there and go one-on-one with great consistency and get your baskets. He's one of those guys that needs to get into the flow of the game. He needs to have plays designed where easy baskets come to him. I thought we totally missed the boat by not running more with him. Freshman year, there were these instances where he would just get out in the break and throw down these monster dunks. He should have been doing that his entire career. I love Miles Kale. I love guys that play with that athleticism. He always guarded the best player on the other team so and he was a workhorse he never complained last game of the season against georgetown he basically gets benched down the stretch yes he was having a tough game but you don't bench your seniors because they're having a rough game the last game of the season you know what he can do i'm gonna miss miles as much as you're gonna miss sandro i just never thought we used them up to his skill level i'll defend miles as well he should not have been playing the two guard he never was a two 
This was once again, putting him in a position to fail because of, you know, issues with roster construction or lack of recruiting. So miles should have been, you know, a, a typical three man. We had Roden playing the three. Could we have done some more small ball and go Sandro Roden kill like, uh, you know, Willard alluded to. Yeah, but we didn't see that happen. Miles was great slashing. Miles was great spotting up for a three, getting out on the break. This team needed to play fast this year, and we did not play fast. We got dragged into muck it out half court offense, and Miles was asked to do too much, as you said, individually with the ball in those kind of sets. He was set up to fail. Uh, maybe Miles is also not an alpha type player. Not every guy, by the time that they're a senior, has to become an alpha. That's just also not fair. So Miles could have played his role on a team as the third or fourth cog doing other things such as locking guys down defensively if other guys stepped up around him. So we just kind of, once again, pass the blame over to miles because of maybe some other deficiencies that we're going to talk about. So yeah, miles maybe underperformed slightly, but also not truly that fair to beat him up in this segment because he was not utilized the way that he should have been. So I'm going to defend miles on the way out the door here because like everything else, he is a great representation of the type of Seton Hall player that we want, you know, positive in the media, a leader on the court and off the court. And that to me means something as well. So Miles should go out with his head held up high and not getting picked on in sour grapes and grapes. Now, potentially the biggest overstatement of the entire Willard quote. And again, I feel bad that we're even going to point it out, Mike, because to Carl Molson, Gave us nothing but heart, energy, and desire out there every time he get out. But when you sit there and say, he reminds you a little bit of Alpha Diallo. Wow. What a total exaggeration of reality there, man. For those of you who don't remember Alpha Diallo, he was a two-time All-Big East player. He averaged 15-8-3 over his final two seasons. There was nothing in Molson's game that should have reminded you about Alpha Diallo outside of maybe effort. You've been waiting. You've been saving that one up the whole season. Come on. Don't lie. You couldn't wait to get that one out because I'm sitting here in the preseason thinking that he's going to challenge Miles Kale for major minutes, maybe even kind of push him out of his starting role, but specifically get the majority of playing time down the stretch in crunch time and oh the, the mac player of the year did just not translate to this level and, and sometimes that happens right you know as you said the effort was always there but the execution was not he shoots 35 percent from the floor he shoots 20 percent from three which we also said on our show that you know he shot 27 percent at canisius before he transferred to us and that's when the three-point line was closer so they move it back we saw his challenges shooting the three-point ball in Italy. We liked everything else, but we said, ah, that three-point shooting, watch out. And it, it came to fruition. He struggled with the three-point shot. And we also thought, hey, maybe he could ball handle. Maybe he could backfill some, some time at point guard. Mike, you 20... practice in your French again? What's this wee nonsense? <laughs> 23 assists and 36 turnovers. Uh, you know, I, he, like Kale was probably better suited to play the small forward position. So I, I, I'm, I'm going to throw something else back to you. Okay? So I, I, I want to try to save face for to call here a little bit. Confidence. Confidence is a very fragile dynamic with, with an athlete. 
if he makes the winning plays versus Louisville in the opening game, remember he drives down the lane, we're down by one, he gets his dunk blocked, we possibly win that game. Instead, he misses it. He also gets a chance to redeem himself and gets fouled shooting three free throws, down by three, with essentially no time on the clock, hits the first two and misses the third, and they lose. But he also has a chance to come back against Providence in overtime and finds the ball in his hands with a chance to hit the game-tying three. If any of those plays went his way, does that change the narrative for Tikal? Does that change his confidence? And maybe he becomes a different player and maybe not try to force all those drives, not get in his head about the missed three-pointers. Does it change? Uh, you know, you're asking two questions there. You're asking about confidence and you're asking about whether it changes his story. Confidence-wise, I never thought he played with anything but a great level of self-confidence in him. He always seemed to have that confidence going to the rack, no matter what those layups ended up looking like at the end. He took his open threes, as we always say, you need to take your open threes if you're there. It, we all kind of moaned every time he th he took that open three because it took him three months into, into 2021 to actually make one. But I don't know that it, his confidence was ever down, at least not on the court, maybe in practice, maybe in personal time. Uh, as far as changing the story, I think it changes it a little bit. I, I think he took a lot of undue slamming toward the end of the season for for his play. And you know what? I always was a fan. I always liked I always liked to call. I, we liked him the minute we saw him on the court in Italy. He just seemed to know where he needed to be. He seemed to know what to do. Yes, a tying up Louisville, putting us into overtime. Maybe hitting that uh, shot against Providence would have changed the whole story. And that was that was a really nice, that was that inbound play, right? Where he had to yep, yep. they inbounded underneath their own basket, and he sprinted up the court and took a pass back from Mamu. No, I you know I I'm sorry to see Tikal go. I think he's a I think he'd be a really good piece on next year's team, leading some of the young kids. All right, uh, let's let's keep moving on here. I can play Ike Tyrese and Sandro on the back line and go zone. We, we never saw that once. No, we never saw that. <laughs> Not even close. Uh, Think about how big that lineup ends up being. You've that, got that, two 6'10", 6'11", kids, and a 7'1", kid. Oh, and then we thought we could play Roden at the two, but potentially in that lineup, right? And be the oh. third third largest team in the country. Largest, largest oh, team geez. in the country. All right, or I could go small with Sandro, Roden, Kale, Aiken, and Shavar. But we, maybe we saw that for a total of two minutes for the season. Come on. Yeah, we we saw that probably in about two or three games, probably just due to the fact that uh, that Bryce was hurt so much. And the, the bigger issue is the team just didn't have an identity on the offensive side of the ball. You know, other than asking Sandro to be the man, and that is because in his last bullet point, he did not get Aiken to be healthy. Therefore, we fell short of addressing the point guard position in a big way. And I, I think that's the culmination of all these other bullet points is we missed out on this specific issue. And then it just cascaded, you know, with a ripple effect for what everybody else had to do to try to make up for this miss. I mean, Aiken was counted on to be the big wild card as the nation's top transfer or top grad transfer. I mean, you saw the flashes against Xavier and Creighton. I was gushing. I wanted him to be that guy so bad that every time he had those moments, I was blowing up your phone with like, there it is. All right, here we go. This is the team that we envisioned. This is why I predicted him to potentially be number two in the conference. But ultimately, 
you ended up getting only 201 minutes of floor time for the entire year. He shoots 32% and only has 25 assists. Ah, come on, Tommy. I know you were, I know you thought I was just kind of holding on to hope with Aiken throughout the year. Give me something. It should have been a big red light. It should have been a klaxon sounding off in the night to tell us, oh, this isn't going to go the way we thought it was going to go. You know, the Big East coaches even picked him to be an honorary all Big East mention for the preseason uh, selection teams. And there's Willard at the beginning of the season talking about if I can get him healthy right there. We, we, can't, we didn't even really talk about that much more than, you know, it's a big if because historically he wasn't healthy. But what did that do to the dynamic and the identity of this team? Well, it forced us to play people out of position. I mean, what did it do? It forced us to play Shabar at the one. It kind of forced us to play Kale at the two for long stretches of time. Here comes to Shavar, another lightning rod player. He did, I think, as best as he could. And he and there were certain numbers that were really good. You know, he averaged 4.2 assists for the season. He had really good games early on, and he hit some big game-winning shots, particularly against uh, Penn State in that big 19-point comeback and another against Marquette. But the offense just came to a crawl and was stagnant around the perimeter with nothing going to the basket because that was not in his skill set. And it showed later on in the season as coaches started figuring out what's going on. And over the last eight games, we, we averaged 63 points for the season. And in the Pirates' last six games, where they went, the aforementioned one in five, Mike, he averaged 3.2 turnovers in those games, and he did it as a point guard who doesn't go and attack the rim. It's just not fair. We're, we're, we're making excuses and defending these guys, and I, and I think we should. If Shavar played the role that he was expected to play, Aiken is getting 25 minutes a game, maybe 30. I mean, maybe his injury was never going to allow him to play that many minutes. But if Shavar played five to 10 minutes as the backup point guard, if he played five to 10 minutes as the backup two and gave you 20 high level energy minutes off the bench as that defensive stopper, as that spark plug, not having to run the offense, not having to score the basketball, not having to create, hey, spotting up and hitting big three pointers. I think Shavar would have been a great asset for this team. And people are going to sit there and say he still was, but he was asked to play a huge part in a role that was not suited for him. And the people that saw what the ceiling of this team could be with him at this point guard position passed a lot of criticism against his game, where the other half of the fan base, or maybe the large majority of the fan base, you know, love his story, love his effort, roots for the underdog, and therefore were on the Shavar train the entire season. Any of Shavar's shortcomings in terms of his point guard production really goes back to Willard's shortcoming on this next bullet point in this little trifecta of the point guard analysis, and that's Jahari Long not being ready to play freshman minutes. It was hyped up that here's a guy who's going to be able to come on the court, pass first point guard, big size, 10 to 12 minutes per game and the entire season he's getting compared to his counterpart in the recruiting wars over at St. John's and Posh Alexander. So Posh is tearing up the court and Jahari can't even get on it. 
Tommy only logs nine games in which he had five or more minutes of floor time. He played 129 minutes for the entire season, and he scores 19 points with a total of six assists and 13 turnovers. And that, I, I look, nothing against the kid, but so far, that is a big recruiting miss. Once Bryce went down with that injury in Louisville, you needed to step up the kid's development. You needed to sneak him in minutes into games as much as you could for one, for Shavar's sake, so he wouldn't wear down, and two, to get this kid up to D1 speed. Yes, it would have been ugly, but you're not going to get this kid ready to play minutes down the stretch if you can't do that. Once Bryce went down that first time, you just said, "Uh uh-oh, every red light should have been going off And you should have said, we need to make sure this kid can at least bring productive minutes to the team. And you didn't do that. And you end up lucking out down the stretch the last two games of him actually playing pretty well. And look how excited we got for the kid coming in and playing quote unquote pretty well. I mean, if you looked at him from simply a box score standpoint, I think the kid scored three points over those last two games, had a single assist, and I think he had one turnover. And we were uber excited, Mike. So so I'll ask you this. If you had a chance to do it all over again and Bryce Aiken's there and we don't get a chance to bring him on campus in the normal recruiting process where he can play a pickup game with the guys and they could come back and be like, coach, his, his knee's pretty messed up. He's not playing at that kind of speed that we thought he was going to play or we saw in those videos. I mean, that kind of happens throughout the recruiting process. Everything was done virtually via Zoom. We thought Aiken was out last year or he was out last year due to a foot injury, not the knee injury that happened his sophomore season. Knowing how it all played out, knowing how the information was presented to Kevin Willard or the lack of information that they could evaluate, would you have still taken the chance on Bryce Aiken knowing what you know now? I don't think coming on campus has had anything to do with this. And this this scenario plays into way too many butterfly effect kind of issues. If you don't think about taking Bryce, do you push Anthony Nelson out the door or make a suggestion that Anthony should go elsewhere? There is a whole lot of other questions that happen. What if he comes on campus and says, you know what, man, I tweaked a hamstring. I'm not going to play a pickup. Or, you know, I'm just not feeling it. He might not go. Or he might say, you know what? You know what I've got. I don't need to play a game of pickup against your guys. You do, you've got four years of footage to know what I can bring you. So I don't think that's got anything to do with it, to be honest with you. Okay, so then once he gets dealt the hand that he gets dealt, or he got dealt, now you expect Coach to have to maneuver. And he maneuvers by playing Shavar the amount of minutes that he did. And we're sitting back going, wait a minute, though. Willard's the chiropractor. He's supposed to be adjusting throughout the year and finding ways to overcome some of these challenges. And I'm getting to the point where I'm like, you know, maybe this moniker is being overplayed too much. So I want to go down the... Did Willard fulfill the chiropractor, you know, title? Does he deserve that title? Because there were moments throughout the year where I think maybe he fell a little bit short of that. And I want to start with not being able to beat Nova or Creighton. Is this becoming a theme? You know, outside of 2020, is third place in the new Big East, Seton Hall ceiling? I don't think losing to Nova 
is this big problem, to be honest with you. Everybody loses to Nova. I'm more concerned about the stuff that he does or doesn't do against the other teams, Mike. Well, that's my point. You know, Providence was a big team this year. Georgetown was a big team this year. And both of those teams gave Creighton fits by pounding the ball inside. And his adjustment was to adjust to their strength. That, that drove me nuts in terms of the Creighton matchups this year. Got blown out in the first one, and then they blow the lead in the second one. So that's my next bullet point is, hey, how many times can we sit back and watch this program blow the types of leads that they've blown? We talked about it in previous seasons, but this year, monumental collapses. The 16-point lead versus Creighton, and Tom, the 18 to nothing start at St. John's. At what point does he have the ability to call timeout, get the team refocused, and say, you know what, we got to put a stop to this run? It becomes meltdown city, and you saw it coming in both games. I think he ends up actually not making adjustments. He doubles down a lot of times on the stuff he ends up doing, and it ends up out drawing out these problems. And it's not just game time situations we're talking over big stretches of season mike going back to the games this is now a thing that seton hall does last year in the bahamas had a big lead against oregon gets canceled out this year against creighton this year against st john's to a smaller degree we had a similar big lead against uconn with james book knight in the lineup so and they and game. they had a lead against Butler at Butler too. They had a chance to step on their throats and put them away early, and they let them back in. But I, here's here's my problem: as these adjustments don't happen, we went through the Seton Hall slide, the January swoon, whatever you want to call it. I want to say we went two and four in January, and we were like, "Well, thank God January's over. Here comes February and March. This is where Kevin makes his money," and we end up going four and four in February, which in the big picture is probably not that bad. But if you look at the games, it was the same exact blueprint. It was the same exact strategy. We won a pair of those games real down nasty and ugly. And then we go into that 0-4 slide toward the end of February and into March. Where were the adjustments? We shot the ball from three like garbage. But we never seem to say, let's go big, let's go down low, let's play some ball down there. It just seemed like this was Kevin's worst coaching performance as a Pirate to date. It's tough to debate that, right? I mean, he's had some moments where he's been phenomenal. He's had some individual moments where you scratch your head. But the collective stretch when the tournament bib was on the line. So people tried to go back and compare uh, to the 2012 season where they have that, you know, monumental collapse in the last game of the season versus DePaul. And I had, you know, a little rant in one of my opening monologues. So for one game, I get that. But I think the frustration in this season was the repetitive nature of every one of those losses in that one in five stretch. You saw a lot of the same flaws rear its ugly head. And then you have some people sit there and go, well, was that Kevin's fault? Or was maybe that just the talent level of this team? And you saw things kind of even itself out during that final stretch. I don't know. I just would have liked to seen better improvement in guarding the three-point line at some point throughout the year. 
whether it was a 2-3 zone, a 1-3-1, just give me a different wrinkle to kind of fix something that is your biggest flaw, not only on your team, but in the conference and worst of all, one of the worst teams in the nation. That's where you want to see those chiropractic adjustments. You wanted to sit there and say, hey, they're scoring 63 points a game. They're not getting the right point guard play. Give me something else to try to get the offense jump-started. We didn't see that. So, yes, I will sit there and go on record and say, so far, collectively, this is probably the, the, the biggest challenge and failure for Willard in terms of his coaching success at Seton Hall. Absolutely. You know, we spent enough time being negative here, Mike. You know, it's not that we only can be critical of, of Kevin. We can also be critical of the announcing teams that have covered our games. And we, we point that out in our mic flops and drops. But I thought we could do something uh, in a little more humorous kind of way and one final way to honor your boy Sandro on the way out. Oh, are you going to do that for me? You're going to honor Sandro for me? Look oh, at just you go. For you, Mike, you know, so as someone who's had a last name who has been butchered over time, and I, I know you have trouble with your last name with people butchering it as well. Don't don't get me started. Desiree comes across as Desiree, Desire. I, I, I don't even want to go down this path. So what better way than to highlight the way certain announcers said his name over the years? So we put together a little bit of a tape of both uh, people saying his name correctly and then other people saying his name interestingly. All right, so I, I think it's important that before you play this clip, we're going to have Sandro as the first soundbite from when he was a freshman because everybody wanted to know, how do you say his name? How do you say Mamu Kelashvili? And they had him and they posted this on Twitter and Sandro sets the record straight. So I think it's funny to, to listen to this clip in its entirety. You hear Sandro once again pointed out, this is not like Sandro is senior year. He pointed out his freshman year before he even steps on the court. And then for the next four years, it just gets butchered. All right, roll, roll the tape. Mamu Kelashvili. Mamu Kelashvili. All right. This is Sandro Mamu. I'm sorry. I'm in the mood to try to pronounce his name. I apologize. <laughs> Mamu Lukashvili. Mamu Lukashvili. You have a unicorn in six foot eleven. Sandro Mamu Kelashvili. Mamu Kishvili has really done an excellent job. And he certainly has pieces to work with. When you look at Sandro Mamu Kelashvili. And there's a lackluster uh, effort there from Sandro Mamish. Between Sandro, he's open for three. Good! Sandro Mamukalashvili with his second three-pointer of the day. And what you really liked was that Sandro Mamukalashvili, Mamu as we say for short. Then he feeds the alley-oop to Sandro Mamukalashvili. Something like that. Sandro Mamukalashvili. Mama Kulashvili. Say what? I still got up, maybe at the end. <laughs> he did better than any Mama of us. Mama Kulashvili. Shvili. Sandro Mamuka Kulashvili. Hey, that was pretty good. That's the best yet. Yeah. <laughs> I can't stop laughing. Oh, man. For, for those who don't know, that, that's, that was Gary Miller from a local 12 news show kind of going through the Seton Hall highlights, and he just, he just couldn't get out of his own way you, you over know, and over again. Gary has a history of that, though. I mean, he, he was covering uh, sports for ESPN for a while, and he couldn't get the European soccer players out of his mouth. But definitively, in my opinion, the worst attempt at it was Ryan Hollins this year at a halftime 
of the Seton Hall Georgetown game where he just goes Sandro Mamouche. Oh man! What's funny about all those clips is you hear some of the guys that get it right, and yeah, you know, I think you had a clip of uh, we, we had Fanta is. get it right, we yeah, had Fanta, Bill Fanta Koch get it uh, right, and, and you had Bill Koch in there who covers Providence, right? Providence in Rhode Island, and he nails it. But then you got Carrito, you got uh, Pelsman, yeah, even Gary Cohen to an extent, right? He's got a, the wrong inflection on the first syllable. These are the guys that covered him all the time and they don't get it right it blows my mind we had some guys that didn't get it right we got some guys that got it right so mike let's continue with that concept of positivity we always do the woe did you see that for the big plays of the game what do you see as a woe do you see that for this season all right in, in terms of getting it right and i think this was done well across the entire country you had you couldn't have fans in the stands, right? But but we had the cutouts. We, we had a way for the fans to feel represented uh, however they chose to do so. I mean, for us, it was the best $89 of marketing money ever spent, right? You got you got the LCP logo sitting there in the stands next to Tony Soprano and Ice-T, and you're like, like, whoa, what was that? What's that out there? Look, look, look Tom, we made the big time. Uh, <laughs> it, it was cool, right? People's got their kids. They got their favorite stars. It was just a way for the fans to feel like they were a part of the atmosphere or action in the smallest way possible. And you saw that fill stadiums and arenas all throughout the country. So to me, that was a, whoa, did you see that? I I thought the program got it right. And it was nice to see night in and night out uh, on the broadcast. What, What else? It was fun, but you know what? Kind of a bigger theme. Whoa, did you see that incoming recruiting class that we were able to procure during the season? We're talking about that trifecta of incoming freshmen, Weston, Conway, and Powell. The class itself ends up ranked 26th nationally. These were all McDonald's All-American nominees. They're all top 150 kids with Weston topping out in the 80s. This is really good. Probably not 2014 good, but really good. I was about to say, we're going to have to throw some shade here. No shade, no shade. There's no shame. But but there there is a lot of expectations on this group. I'm I'm excited. Don't get me wrong. I am excited. We're going to talk about how the uh, some of the people are leaving the program and some guys are graduating. Really opening the door for these guys to come in and play some immediate big minutes, which we haven't seen happen from a freshman class going all the way back to the Isaiah Whitehead group. So to- totally excited. But I think that's also not fair because we like to make comparisons. And since this is the group that's going to get a chance to shine or have the opportunity to shine right out of the gate, they're already being compared to the Whitehead Delgado KC group that also had Enzi ish and, uh, and Desi. I'm, I'm sorry. It's, it's not a fair comparison. No, I want to pump no. the brakes a little bit, <laughs> right? I, I'm, I'm hoping these guys, you know, carry the torch and get us back to prominence and back to the NCAA tournament. But if we're putting the Whitehead Delgado expectation on them, We're going to end up back doing sour grapes and gripes saying we fell short of expectations again. Okay, so this also is not a Griffin Barrett Pony L class either. And this is definitely not a DeHaron Walker class. But these kids have an opportunity to make a name for themselves. Well, and it clearly is the best class on paper in terms of rankings since that last group. So there's no doubt about that. And you watch some of the highlight videos that you're going to pick on me again, right? But I, I Conway, man, he's, he's electric, right? We, we haven't had an electric point guard like this 
Um, I'm going to make a comparison and I'm probably going to hold this against me then for the next four years. Got a little Marcus Howard in him a little bit. No, with his ability to shoot the three, wow. create his own shot. You Wow. I just did that, there. I went there. That, that's, I, I went can't there. Wait, I'm going to keep this. I'm going to keep this clip at the ready. You know, this sounds like an Alpha Diallo. You know what this sounds like? It sounds like our friend Tyler Calvaruso coming out and talking about the Kyle Molson transfer into Seton Hall, telling us that he sees a little bit of Isaiah Whitehead in him. That's not fair. He said a couple of his moves look like Isaiah Whitehead. There were both. no moves that looked like Isaiah Whitehead. Again, I'm not. I don't. I hate to sound like I'm picking on Takal, but no, that was a bad one. But in addition, we've got we had transfer news this week. We got Jameer Harris, senior from American, coming in to be a grad transfer. And with him coming in, this helped us land Jaquan Harris, his younger brother, who's also a local point guard who's a top 150 recruit. You're not going to tell me more about Jameer? That's it? That's all you're going to give me about Jameer? Give me something for Jameer. Come on. Tell the fans a little bit more of what they you're need to the know. You're the numbers guy, Mike. You tell me about Jameer. I'm, I'm afraid if I start making this comparison, you're going you're gonna to make the Carl Molson connect the dots reference. 2020-2021 All-Patriot League. Right, 6'2", 198, 20 points or 20 and a half points per game, three and a half assists. He did almost have a one-to-one assist to turnover ratio, but the splits were solid. 47% from the floor, 43% from three, respectable from the line at 73%. And he made 4.2 three-pointers per game, which led all transfers out there in the portal he also led all transfers in the portal with scoring average per game so there's a lot to like about having a guy that can come in and shoot a high percentage because maybe he can backfill that shooting guard spot that's been kind of void and now with kale graduating and to call back in the transfer portal and also shavar in the transfer portal you really don't have anybody to play the two so that that's kind of encouraging but once again it's the patriot league it's a lower level D1 transfer. Are we going to get the Quincy McKnight or are we going to get the Tacal Molson? Stay positive, Mike. Stay positive. I'll take his younger brother who's not going to be here until the 2022 class. This kid is exciting. He held scholarship offers from Rutgers, Auburn, Yukon, Illinois, Marquette, and a plethora of others. I mean, this kid has had, had some real interest for some real big D1 schools. And more importantly, along with Ryan Conway coming to Seton Hall this fall, Harris has committed, and it's the first time Kevin Willard has been able to bring in back-to-back top 150 recruits at the point guard position during his 11 seasons at Seton Hall. This is going to be big. And why is this important? Because you're, you're going to combine that now with Jahari Long. So now I got three guys once the next recruiting class comes in that can just compete with each other for the playing time. I know you're probably sitting there going, wow, is is Jahari really going to be in the mix after what just happened this past season? And it now appears that he might be getting recruited over, but Hey, let's, let's see the competition play itself out. Hey, positive Mike. I am. You know, know, next season, you got depth now. There's a whole lot of excitement for next season. There's a whole lot of what if around it because Mike, this is basically going to be a brand new team. We are losing, at this point, six players. Three to graduation, 
Doritas already entered the transfer portal between Takal Molson, Shavar Reynolds, and Dominguez Stevens. Dominguez, we hardly even knew you. In addition to that, we've got Jeff and Gandu showing up on campus. Hopefully the whole Canadian visa thing gets settled by this point. We barely saw Trey Jackson scratch the floor. And then I think with all this out there, we still have open scholarship positions. Three. You got three still. That Hit we it. can bring in somebody that can help this. This team's going to have a whole brand new look. It's going to have a whole brand new feel, Mike. Yeah, look, there's a lot of excitement. I, I You keep on making fun of me about videos. I love what I saw with the athleticism from Trey Jackson You know when he played in high school. We just haven't had a chance to see it translate onto the court in college yet. He, he had small glimpses at Missouri and he couldn't crack the lineup for Seton Hall last year. But, you know, there's a lot of talent that's coming in or that's already on this roster from the previous season. We just got to kind of see if it kind of plays itself out. But but there's hope and optimism to kind of turn the roster over for the first time in a while. It's It's been Seton Hall over the last five or six years where you've had a strong upper class representation and guys kind of come in knowing their role and kind of developing for a year or two before it was their turn to shine. It, it, this is a blank canvas. You got a lot of guys that are going to try to come in and support Jared Roden and Ike Obiagu. And after that, there's a lot of question marks, which, Hey, look, we, we could, we could be negative and say that could blow up. And if these guys don't develop or they don't hit their stride right away, it could be a long season, but it also could be a lot of fun. Right. Watching these guys grow, watching these guys get their minutes and say, wow, a year, two, three down the road. This could be a formidable team again. Kind of like you had the Desi Angel KC group that finally got to their senior year. And you're like, now they're going to shine. Well, this season wouldn't be complete if we didn't have one final look at what the pandemic did to college basketball this year. It was a real difficult season for the players in so many ways. We kind of expounded upon that earlier in the podcast. Like you spent a long time in the preview bemoaning what could happen. I'm going to give you a short time here to bemoan about what did happen and the results and the effects of it. Well, I mean, look, Tom, we got a whole bunch on the horizon, right? We, we got the new eligibility issues we got the new transfer rules you're going to see a lot of new faces across the entire country uh, that's directly correlated to seton hall like we just broke down but it doesn't take away from what the pandemic did to the 2020-21 season you know even though it was actually played you know it, it wasn't short of its sacrifices you know we had dcu forfeit an ncaa tournament game and that, that's got to rip at the heartstrings of those fans and those players for that program to put in all this time, get there, and not even get a chance to play on the big stage. You got the Ivy League again that had to shut down their entire season. You had the non-conference, which was basically chopped in half. You had the, you know, the prestigious Thanksgiving holiday tournaments were canceled left and right. And then you got teams like Xavier. It only plays 13 games out of a 20-game conference schedule due to multiple pauses. You know, and let's not forget the process that the players had to go through. You know, that includes all these early morning COVID tests multiple times a week, you know, 6, 7 a.m. in the morning. You got five months of these players living in virtual isolation, barred from seeing their families, Christmas break, holidays, still quarantining on campus. You know, and when they had to physically quarantine due to a COVID pause, the isolation was not easy. 
we're talking like, for example, you go, you go to the Big East tournament and you had to get there two days ahead of time and you had to stay in your hotel room and not leave. It's, it's kind of like being in jail to an extent, right? And then you have this two-week quarantine that teams had to endure, specifically the Pirates, at the start of the season. And Kevin Willard lamented that for some players, it just really hit them hard, both physically and mentally. You know, these, these kids went through all this for the joy of playing the game. And that's great, but but make no mistake about it. They ultimately sacrificed for the greater good and the betterment of the fan base, right? So the, if the 2021 NCAA tournament did not get played, the sport was going to be financially crippled. We heard this over and over again. And the revenue needed to be earned for future seasons to be played. So regardless of how this all turned out, they deserve a big thank you from all of us because of what they gave us for this year and what they allowed us to see going forward. Well, Mike, hopefully we can say this one final time and never have to say it again. These kids went through so much. They sacrificed so much. I hope they never get put through something like this again. Let's hope that they can go back to enjoying themselves as college kids. So, Mike, that ends the season, baby. But our work never ends because it's time for the summer session interview series to begin. We're planning on bringing on some more interesting guests to the pod. We will announce them as we put them in the can, but I'm super excited about the people we're planning on talking to this summer. As much as we kind of go down the rabbit hole throughout the season, and sometimes it's positive and sometimes it could be negative, call it whatever you want to call it, blue tinted glasses or sour grapes and grapes. You know, it, it's, it's always fun to break down the season and kind of be emotionally engaged like we do. Like, you know, it's the, it's the pulse of the fan base. Maybe even though we don't represent every fan in our cake. I, I get that, but it's, it's fun. It's, it's, it's nice to be, you know, bleeding blue, you know, through it all. But I love the summer, man. And it's not that we're not playing basketball. Some of the stories that we grew up with, some of the games that we grew up with, we get to retell those stories. We get to uh, live in the glory days, in the positive moments throughout the entire year. Yes, we get to ask a couple tough questions, but uh, I- I'm excited for it. Like I said, you don't want to let the cat out of the bag and, and jinx you know, uh, one of those guests not coming on the show after we drop their name, but I think we got a couple of good ones lined up. Obviously, we're going to do some recruiting talk. Hopefully, we'll get Brian Felt on again and do another, uh, you know, State of the Union with the AD like we've done the past two years. It, it should be a fun summer, and it's just going to be a, a brand new perspective leading into next season. It's just, it's the expectations are going to be a little bit different, and it's going to be different analysis kind of going into that new season, but it'll be a new season. And it'll be exciting, and we'll find a way to have some fun with it. Oh, one final time for the season, Mikey. Go Pirates! Go Big Blue! Thanks for joining us for another episode of Left Coast Pirates. Be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other of your favorite listening platforms. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter with our handle, at Pirates. We are also proud members of the What You Expect Network of Podcasts. And don't miss out on any of our previous episodes that include interviews with Seton Hall legends, Danny Calandrillo, Mark Bryant, Andrew Gaze, Shaheen Holloway, and many others. For Tom Kaharski, I'm Mike Desiri, and you've been listening to Left Coast Pirates. (laughs) 